Hello, and thanks for joining me here on the World Music Podcast. I'm your host, Will Marsh. Here on episode seven, I'm sharing a warm conversation with Daniel Paul, who is a tabla player and percussionist. Uh, Daniel is a Fulbright India scholar. And he earned his nine-year degree in the classical music of India from the Aliakbar College of Music in San Rafael, California. Primarily studying under the guidance of the late maestro Aliakbar Khan, Daniel also served as the maestro's personal assistant and tour manager, all the while studying tabla under several of India's great classical masters, Zakir Hussain, Swapan Chowdhury, and Janan Prakash Ghosh. Throughout his long career, Daniel has performed with a diverse group of musicians from the late Bansuri flute master, G.S. Sachdev, to Hawaii's Henry Capono, and with many of today's top kirtan chanting artists, such as Sanatam Kar, Seattle's Gina Salah, and for two decades with Grammy nominee Jai Uthal. Daniel's numerous recording appearances include Jai Uthal's Kirtan, The Art and Practice of Ecstatic Chant, Footprints and Monkey. Uh, Daniel can also be heard on his own instrumental and kirtan chanting CDs, including the Indian classical CD Ragas of the Four Seasons with his good friend sitarist Will Marsh. <laughs> well, we're listening to our track from that album Ragas of the Four Seasons right now in the background. And uh, what a great conversation I had with Daniel. You know, he had the rare opportunity of spending so much close and personal time with these masters mentioned above, like Ali Akbar Khan, Zakir Hussain, Ravi Shankar, and uh, it's well worth it to tune into this episode just to hear um, these amazing stories that Daniel has. He also shares some great perspectives on seeing the, the world of Kirtan evolve in the West. He was really there from the very beginning. And, you know, I also interviewed Jayu Tall and Steve Gorn in other episodes, and I kind of consider these three guys, um, Jai, Steve, and Daniel, to be almost like the founding fathers of Americans who really seriously studied Indian music. And not only that, but they brought it into their own music and, and continued to follow their own musical vision. So uh, it's just a great episode where Daniel illuminates that whole path as a young American finding his way working with Ali Akbar Khan to then finding a path in the world of Kirtan. Excuse some of the internet connection on this episode. There's a few spots where it's a little choppy, but I was not willing to not release this episode. Uh, You'll also hear some birds in the background in Daniel's home on Maui. We've just been lucky to develop a great friendship so you'll kind of hear that warmth and and personal quality to this interview it was originally recorded on september 22nd 2020 thanks for joining me and enjoy hello everyone today i'm excited to have good friend fantastic musician daniel paul joining me well it's it's a real pleasure to have you here. <laughs> Daniel is joining me from from Maui. And, you know, one of the things I'm curious about right off the bat, Daniel, is I'm curious what you were up to in your early music days before you discovered tabla. And 
was music a part of your household and you know what were the early days like for you well um first thank you it's wonderful to be here with you in this format different than sitting next to you with our instruments which i love so this is this is interesting and great um Evidently, we had a piano when I grew up. I barely remember it. Nobody in my family would call. And um, I tried guitar, I tried piano. Um, nothing took, but I was driven to music somehow. I think when I was five, my mother took me for recorder classes, and I remember adults in the room. And... Um, I guess we were learning to read Western music, but that didn't really do much for me. And by fourth grade, I had a little trio with Bobby Janssen's on guitar and David Nunes, who was the smallest kid in the world on a massive accordion. And I used to write songs about spacemen for our little trio. And believe it or not, which is really crazy, I actually invented an instrument out of Coke bottles and filled them with water. And I would set them up on the desk and we would perform for the class. And I played these Coke bottles filled with water with chopsticks, which is a jaltarang in modern India, or ancient India even. I had no knowledge of it. And of course, later in my life, I, I ended up on the tabla tarang, which is a set of tabla played like that. So it was kind of interesting in fourth grade, I was anticipating my future life. Um, I remember a rock and roll band in junior high. I remember being drawn to listening to every kind of music get my hands on. Um, when I went away to uh, Quaker boarding school in, uh, what was that, 11th grade, I met two beautiful brothers who became my closest friends a guitarist named Brandon Ross, who's a professional jazz player out of New York with Cassandra Wilson and people like that now, and, and Paul Block on piano, who grew up in a musical family with his violinist father, Alan Block, who was a famous fiddler. And we wrote for about four or five years together. We had a wonderful time. And we were, they both were heading toward jazz, and somehow in my travels I ended up listening to Indian music. Of course, I was infatuated hearing the um, Hare Krishna groups, you know, trying to drum up acolytes on the street, but I loved their music. I wasn't quite into the scene, and I, I was drawn to uh, their music, which was kirtan. I mean, at the time, I, I was in my teens, I hardly remember much. Were, were you exposed to that just in your local uh, neighborhood, the, the kind of the Hare Krishna music and activity? Well, I have a, I had a, I think, fairly common upbringing, although I was younger than most. At, at about the age of 15, I, I left home and I traveled. I hitchhiked all around the country. So wherever I went, I would run into different, there were, this was, this is 1968. 69, 70, and up through 74, 
and I was just drawn. I was writing songs. I was kind of a lyricist, melody guy. And I go back to my two friends, Brendan and and Paul, and they would we would all put it to music. Um, but along the way, I ended up with a tabla, not not the bass drum, just the treble drum, and it was from Nepal, I believe. Cause it was a massive tabla, and I beat the hell out of it with 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 drumsticks. Till the black gob was gone. I knew nothing about tuba. But I think because of that, I started listening even more to classical music and would gather albums of Ali Akbar Khan and Ravi Shankar. And when I was 15, I did go to Woodstock. I, I lived not far, and my older sister's boyfriend took me. And I arrived while Ravi Shankar and the great Alaraka was playing. And um, I was in a bit of an altered state. And uh, so I guess we're talking 69. So it really wasn't until five years later that I found my way back to Indian classical music because I had heard the orchestra play with Zakir at a Ramdas. Um, it was a big festival in Davis and the Ali Akbar College Orchestra went up and played and there were dancers under Chichurch Das, the great Katak dance master I studied with there too later. So I saw them all dancing and I was like, and all, all these, you know, white guys and girls playing all the instruments, tabla and okay. like 30 of them. So it, I didn't think I'd be good enough, that I'd be smart enough. I thought it would be like Juilliard to go to the Ali Akbar College of Music. And I finally met someone in like December of 74. She said, no, oh, you can go. They'll teach you, don't worry. <laughs> and I immediately went, and boom, there we are. I'm starting in 75 at the, at the Upper College of Music at Bothine Manor up in Fairfax, California. Wow. I love Got this you there. kind of full circle where, you know, you're a kid putting together your own jaltarong, having no idea that that's what's actually going on. And then you get a taste of, you know, the great masters, Alaraka and, and Ravi Shankarji at Woodstock, and you get your hands on a big tabla drum. You don't quite know yet what to do with it, and then you end up destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> Got to start somewhere, and then then you end up formally studying. Wow, there, that's yeah. just a beautiful uh, kind of journey there, and I think all of us have unique stories in which uh, we come to this music. And I always like to say, you know. How, I don't. I don't like to say how did you find tabla. It's more like how did tabla find you, right? You, you weren't expecting to become a tabla artist or a performer at, at any point prior to this, right? So I, I do. I do love this kind of um, the story of how we how we came to the music, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, if I might add, um, at that time. Certainly back in the 60s, we grew up in a black and white world and everything was just very square and in a box and everybody stayed in the parameters of that box. And I think when, when the big LSD diffusion into the culture and took off with the kids, it opened our minds to like wanting to hear new stuff. And, you know, and subsequently, that whole generation, people started to get involved in different other cultures, 
be it in music or spirituality or whatever you had huge african drumming groups forming you know and so for me and those of us that went the indian classical way i don't think we knew what we were getting into because the classical music of india is a massive amount of literature that has been preserved orally and passed down and we came out of these shallow suburban lives not really understanding what's sitting in front of someone day after day for 10 years what that is out of your culture yeah 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 and i thought when i when i started to study if i remember correctly I thought I was just going for a couple of semesters and bring that back, bring Indian music back into my music. Right. I had no idea I would end up staying there for nine years and right. totally and forgetting my own music and focusing on classical music. So I really just wanted to point out that the time just naturally led us to be curious and naturally led us to find all our different paths. And I just thank God that mine was in the direction that it was to those wonderful, wonderful masters. Yes, and you know, I acknowledge that time is the spark of something that has been passed on, you know, to my life. And for me, the same kind of story. It's like I I was uh, expecting to study a little bit of Indian music and bring it back into my own music, and and then you know, 15 years later, here I am, and I'm <laughs> there's no turning back, and also that spark that you're talking about that was kind of cultivated at that time has actually grown into a sustainable kind of force of its own now in the sense that it is more common for a a western person to seriously pursue the the rigor of indian classical music and i think you guys really were the ones to begin that phase and I'm just humbled and honored to be a part of that chain of, of this music living and spreading to a whole other culture. It's, it's really awesome. And I think that's one of the special things we share is, you know, we come from the same musical lineage from India. <clears throat> and we just came upon it at different times. And uh, it's, it's really a beautiful testament to the timelessness of, of Indian classical music. Yeah, it's true. So, so when I got to the college, you know, we say college, uh, it was about Ali Akbar Khan taught beginning, intermediate, and advanced vocal. That's three classes a week. And then instrumental, three more classes a week, two hours a class, uh, four hours a night, Sunday days. And um, and then there were other assistant teachers, and then Zakir was teaching tabla uh, twice a week to beginners, and he had intermediate and advanced, and sometimes it would be a solo lesson. I happened to live across the street from him, and he would say, hey, come on over to the house, I don't have any other lessons today. So I'd walk across the street, and he'd teach me. He'd sit me down in front of the TV, and he'd watch Star Trek just off to my shoulder. And he'd give me the ball, and I'd work on it while he watched Star Trek. And then he'd look over at me and tell me what I was doing wrong. And that was fun, actually. I enjoyed that. That was 75, right when Zakir started with Shakti. John McLaughlin came to that house when they first tried all that out. But what I wanted to say was, 
about six months in, we moved to the San Anselmo Theological Seminary. And one day after an Ali Akbar Khan vocal class, I was so frustrated that I just didn't understand the music yet, you know. I was trying so hard, I was practicing, I was just, I mean, whatever he just did in there blew me away so much. And I kind of walked outside and there was a, across the parking lot there was a, a park. And I got pretty far away, I didn't think anybody could hear me, and I pulled out my harmonica, which I had grew up playing. And I took all my frustrations out on my harmonica in the park, you know, and all of a sudden I, I hear somebody running behind me and I turn around and there is Ali Akbar Khan's eldest son, your Guruji, Ashish Khan. Wow. And he comes running over and he says, oh my God, oh my God, you have to be in my rock and roll band. <laughs> wow. And that began my relationship with the Khan family starting with Ashish Khan, who then lived with his father, Ali Akbar Khan. And so I found myself in the house visiting Ashish a lot. Uh, Ali Akbar, Maestro Khansab, as we call him, we didn't have a relationship yet other than I sat in front of him in class. And um, anyway, that started my long, beautiful relationship with Khansab and Ashish Khan. Wow. So you were... You're playing the blues on your harmonica, and it led you to this uh, more intimate relationship with the cons. That's that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you're one of the few tabla players I know, Daniel, that has an equal aptitude and love for both classical and kirtan. And for our listeners who aren't so familiar with those two genres. I'm wondering if you could explain the differences and and a little bit about both classical and kirtan. Both styles will include tabla, and you both perform actively in, in each genre. Right. But if you could share that's, for that's, for someone who doesn't know the difference, that would be wonderful. Yeah, it's a great question and um, one that needs to be understood more by the vast kirtan audience that has developed in the last 20 years. Um, so when you see the Hare Krishna groups on the street, they're usually playing a drum strapped around their neck and it's, it, it's a barrel with the skin on both sides. And those kind of drums are the predecessors of tabla drums, which are two separate drums. So the Mardanga, the folk drum of the Hare Krishnas, and the South Indian classical drum Mardangam, were the predecessors, and kirtan really should be accompanied by the folk version, the murdanga. It's really got that kirtani rock and roll flavor to it. But of course, when you th when you think kirtan, it's it's really a folk music in most areas. Now there are singers of kirtan that sing bhajan, that could be classical singers. But it's really considered more of a folk idiom, and you're just singing the mantras over and over, and um, you're singing the names of gods. There aren't really stories in kirtan. You're just singing the mantra, and you're playing in a simple, usually simple to a double player, 4-4 beat, rock and roll, and occasionally a 6-8 six, six, 
or a, or a waltz time and occasionally something even odd like a seven. But for the most part, it's in 4-4 four, four and very appropriate for the masses. About 500 years ago, Lord Chaitanya brought kirtan out of the temples and away from the Brahmins and gave it to the people and they sing and dance in the streets. And so it was, it's an easy idiom to follow and sing along with. Does not necessarily use constructs of the classical music, but most of it is, even though they may, they may not be aware of it. But the melodies can be, uh, the, the scales can be definitely related to the classical structures. Now, alongside this music and developed for thousands of years is what we call Indian classical music today, of which there was a separation about a thousand years ago when the Muslims invaded India. The North developed what we call North Indian classical, which is influenced half by the uh, Persian culture and the cultural music of Persia over hundreds of years in the mogul courts of the king of the uh, maharajas in uh, delhi so you have this homogenization of the two cultures creating a new style of indian classical music called north indian classical music or uh, hindustani music while in the south it stayed without that muslim interest uh, that muslim influence and we call it south indian classical or carnatic music so Ravi Shankar, Ali Akbar Khan, these are North Indian classical players. So we, you and I, Will and I are in the North Indian mode. And they like to say, I mean, this is a big subject, Will. How far are we going back here? The Rishis, the old saints, thousands and thousands of years ago are said to have, maybe today we would use the word channel, but they kind of understood what scales went with what time of day, what emotions, what times seasons, uh, just every category of natural phenomena in nature and in the time cycle and how all these scales related to each other. And, you know, you find some people who believe this music comes even further back than the Rishis and comes from like Atlantis or somewhere or from the gods, you know. But conventional Indian history says about that time it came out of the jungles and into the temples and lived in the temples for a long time and kept being developed until comes into the modern age. When I say modern age, I'm, I'm talking a thousand years ago when, they, when the Mughals set up their dynasty in Delhi and created these just intense laboratories for taking this ancient classical system of music odd time signatures, all the melodic structures you can think of, uh, what Western music is versus Indian, that's another topic. But let's just say in India, it's the science of all the possible constructs of scales and rhythms into a beautiful format of performance. But the performance is not really a performance because the audience in those days, and even today, the, the people in the know, they're, they're, they're feeling this construct that you're making to experience audibly what's happening in nature and in your emotional body. And so it's much deeper than just listening to music and enjoying it. I hope I made 
Yeah, no, you've gone you've gone deep into this. It's wonderful, and yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about Swami Haridas, and um, you know, he was a sage who resided in the jungle, and he was the guru of the famous Tansen, one of the court musicians of Akbar the Great, and um, yeah, it's it's just a beautiful history, and and um, and even Tansen, who was so famous. And beloved would say, "Oh, but you need to hear my teacher Haridas. Oh, where is he? Oh, he's in the jungle. I don't know where to find him." <laughs> yep. And then the king finds his way in the jungle, and you know has to humble himself and and uh, take off his king hat so that he can be graced with the singing of this great sage in the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Is, the king went is, to him. This is great. I think anyone listening who um, did not know much about this music now has a has a great vantage point of this rich history and I, I know that's something that both of us love about this music and yeah and uh wow yeah it's fantastic but that's you know that that gets to that dichotomy the difference between kirtan and indian classical music both north and south so kirtan is instantly accessible you hear a line you never heard indian music in your life and you just sing it back as best you can it's a prayer and you you know, it's not a performance. It's how you would pray like a Baptist choir, everybody yeah. singing in church. Okay, yeah. it's very totally correlated to that. Classical music is like meditation. It's like if you're, if you're learning to meditate without music and you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're told processes of how to focus and everything. Indian classical music is a musical meditation. And with, with the right teacher at the right time and the right amount of practice, you are guided through the levels of peeling the onion away to get at the, at the diamond on the inside and, and, and training yourself with your, with your teacher to understand how to go deeper and deeper and deeper into all these, even though there's like, hundreds of different constructs of scales and all the different kinds of rhythms you can imagine to master them requires this guidance from someone to know to make sure you don't just go all crazy and that you stay focused so it's a different kind of meditation and it's so different than kirtan but people aren't really aware of that pathway and it's nice to illuminate them to understand how how there are other forms of meditation in India and music is one of them and um, the sciences these are all the yogas the ancient the ancient yogas that were passed down whether it's Ayurveda cooking or asana yoga stretching and they called uh, um, the Gandharva Veda the ancient knowledge from thousands of years ago was never written down like some of these others music was always passed on orally from teacher to disciples father right. to son it still is yeah. wow well i'm curious with these you know differences between classical and kirtan do you ever feel that there was a sense of of conflict of interest as professionally or artistically or have you been able to just really uh engage in both you you've done a lot of work in both genres and was there ever a time where that 
became a challenge to work in both in both styles. <laughs> well, I think because I grew up in Western popular music, and you know, I actually was a very serious songwriter in my teens, and and studying studying how to do it and all that. But I never learned Western class Western theory of music. It was all words and melodies. And, and originally being drawn to Indian music through Kirtan, um, or at least one of the one side thing, that when I finished my classical studies and I came here to Hawaii on tour, on, on a classical tour with Katak Dance and, and a Sarod player, I was immediately kidnapped after a show by Kirtan singers. And they kind of decompressed me back into my love of song. And not only song, but here are these kirtans that utilize the scales that I grew to love in, this, in those nine years studying classical music, because a lot of the kirtans these people sang were traditional Indian kirtans that were in raga. And I immediately fell in love with the people, with the, with the idiom, with the devotion and, of course, with the music. So it was very easy for me, maybe unlike other people who maybe didn't spend so much time in singing Western music before Indian classical music. And at that time, I was... Now, when you study classical music, there's a lot of judgment. It's not bad judgment, it's just you have to keep looking at how you're doing and are you doing it right and how can I do it correctly or better and your teacher is guiding you la 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 you go to kirtan you know that that classical mode of constantly you know you're sitting in front of the greatest musicians of India and you're trying to play their music without them grimacing and all of a sudden so you know that that can be difficult after a while. So all of a sudden, Kirtan is like completely free. No one is judging. Nobody cares. And yes, the struggle is all of a sudden, you might find yourself accompanying someone who has no rhythm and maybe no melodic sense. And they're singing their heart out, singing a, a devotional mantra. And you learn to give up your sense of correction and you know, you have to you have to give it up and just go with them. Now, I do have to admit that I, as as one of the assistant instructors instructors at the Aliyah College all those years, I taught beginners, so I had practice with kind of closing your ears and just going forward. But yeah, there was a lot of that in the classical in the in the kirtan for me. Now, I still have that problem occasionally, but it's not really a problem. I know that my job is to help them to pray. And I, I, it's not about classical correction. So that's one of the spots. Now, of course, we'll talk about Jai Uttal, but he was someone who I had a kindred spirit in who was classically trained and had a Western music background and was composing endless kirtans that were so beautiful and based in Indian scales, which I loved. So that's a whole nother thing. Someone else who combined classical and kirtan. Yeah, would you say that being a part of Jai's music has been one of your best creative outlets that 
merges your, you know, your knowledge of Indian classical and study and and devotion to the art of playing the tabla, but then also honoring your love for the community and the heart-centered quality of kirtan music. Um, I, I feel that you are kind of, that's an ideal fit for you as an artist, and you've been working with Jai for, for many years, so maybe you can elaborate on that, that alchemy there with you and Jai. Well, the strange thing with Jai, still rather spooky, is that night when I first saw Zakir play at, at, the, uh, at Davis Hall Earth Fair with uh, the Ali Akbar College Orchestra, they were actually opening for Ramdas, who was the spiritual master at that time. He had just, you know, he was very popular, and he did what he always did. And he had, he'd speak for a while, and then he'd have some musicians sing kirtan while he took a break. Mm. And Jayutal was the gentleman singing kirtan that night. Mm. I didn't meet him. I didn't even, I don't even remember him being there, to tell you the truth. But he was there, so I, my path almost hit him that night. And then many years later, after I left Ali Akbar College, I was playing a benefit for Ramdas, hired to play classical music, and Jai uh, introduced himself to me and uh, asked me to stay and do some kirtan, private kirtan with Ramdas and his friends, and I did. And we had an in instant bond that day. We didn't know each other. He studied at the Ali Akbar College at a different time than I did. And we began, he be, at that time he started his Pagan Love Orchestra, and that was a, anywhere from a seven to 11 piece orchestra, nine piece orchestra, rock and roll band with backup singers. And I helped uh, support him a little bit there, getting started and um, recorded those first two albums and, and the great, um, Jeffrey Gordon, good friend of Jai's, what became the percussionist, and uh, I subbed for him many times over the next 10 years while the Pagan Love Orchestra happened. And now in the Pagan Love Orchestra, Jai was combining all his influences, Western, popular, kirtan, rock and roll, and jazz. It's just a wonderful it's not easy to mix Indian music and Western music. Many people try. Not always works. And he, it was just, to list, go back and listen, there's like four or five Pagan Love Orchestra albums, and I recommend them to everybody, because it's this incredible jazz kirtan fusion with Indian classical motifs thrown in. It's just perfection. And um, it didn't make any money. And around 2000, the call started to come from the yoga teachers who had studied in India and understood kirtan or sang kirtan. Of course, the old people who had gone to all the old gurus from the 60s on knew kirtan. But all of a sudden, these yoga studios were popping up and they were not attached to the, to the, to the cults, to the, to the gurus who were there. And they all started to ask anyone who sang kirtan to come out and sing kirtan. And that was the beginning around the end of uh, the 90s into 2000 and on. So that was a big point for, for Jai's career and, and the band's kind of well, phase. Yeah, I mean, Jai would have preferred that the Pagans took off and he could afford to keep a salaried band. And mm -hmm. 
because kirtan was his private practice. And even me at the time, I hadn't, I wasn't doing commercial kirtan. When I came to Maui, there were about a dozen great kirtan singers who had spent time in India with the various gurus or whatever and left. I called them renegades, renegade kirtan singers. Mm. And I fell into a group that would sing kirtan basically all the time, all night long, on the beaches, you know. There was never a paid gig, there was never a sound system. And everybody took turns, and we got together for every holiday, I mean, every weekend, and then any holiday was an excuse. Anybody's birthday was an excuse for kirtan. And this was constant over a 10-year period, 12-year period. Now, in, in the yoga studios, one could say, well, the better kirtan singers, even in India, they have professional kirtan singers who do get paid. But all of a sudden, you, the, the, the yoga studios create, created a scene where everybody's getting paid. If you played at a yoga studio, you're getting paid, unless you were the teacher singing at the end of your class. Mm -hmm. This is kind of interesting that that culture developed, and a lot of people were not too happy about that. Um, but there are a lot of good professional yoga singers that deserve to be paid, especially if you want to fly them or get them to come to your area. Right. Um, we we kind of got into another topic there, but um, to get back to Jai, um, he was reluctant in the beginning. Jeffrey was still around doing some of the gigs. I was playing with a techno band called Lost at Last with Jaya Lakshmi, who's another great kirtan singer. And we would do kirtans on the side without the band. That was always fun with Dave Prio on guitar. And then I left the band. The band had some management problems, even though it was doing pretty good. And... I called Jai, I had been subbing, and I said, Jai, I'm available again. I can substitute, because I had stopped. I wasn't available for Jeffrey. And I called Jai, and he, the kidder that he is, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't use you as a substitute. And he let it hang there. I'm dangling in the wind. Oh, fuck. And then he says, but I can use you full time. <laughs> Jeffrey and I are going separate ways. So that was the beginning of our kirtan Whatever he had already started, and I jumped in, and wow. did about did about ninety ninety five percent of his gigs for the first ten years, and then now dropped down to below fifty percent. Stay home, but yeah, it's been twenty years of kirtan with Jai. It's been awesome. Wow. We're still going. We'll we'll go again. Yes, once once this stuff clears up, I'm sure you guys will be back at it. And yeah, from all of that, what I really loved hearing was. You know, you're somebody who saw the kirtan from its earliest stages in the West to what it is now, and there's been a lot of change in that time. And I love hearing these stories of, you know, for you on Maui, this kirtan practice was really a practice of devotion with your community, using music as the vehicle. And in my experience, I, I still see that devotion, but it's been much more of a professional kind of controlled environment where there's a festival, you know, a yoga festival, and then there's the kirtan musicians who are there, and, you know, there's everything is professional stages and all of this, and, you know, I perform with these groups as a hired musician, and I find that to be a very kind of interesting journey of this art form kirtan, and I'm wondering, as someone who's seen it from an early stage to now, I mean, what do you see its next phase, or 
uh, what, what do you, where do you think it's headed and, and where would you like it to head ideally? Mm, that, that, that's what I was thinking when you said that, but, uh, mm. where I would like it to head is of course more Indian. Well, let's start from the beginning here. So first of all, let's just mention again, Jai is such a unique individual with extensive training in, in, in Western and Eastern music and just the right guy at the right time to make this incredibly incredible beautiful synthesis that mostly for me of course feels more Indian even though he's singing nowadays playing guitar but he, the Indian sensibilities are there even though some of it is more Western you'll hear mostly Indian scales it could be any kind of exotic scale I think in the beginning most kirtan singers were singing traditional Indian kirtan that they had learned in India. Of course, there were always there were always people who made up their own. I and mean, even I can remember Guru Ganesha, uh, who you all are aware of in the kirtan world, who uh, played for Sanatan Kar for, for so many years and has his own career. And he was a pioneer. And he told me, I remember, in their in the mid '60s. The first time he got together with his guru, uh, Yogi Bhajan, in the Sikh tradition, and Sachdananda, they had a, they had, they met, and Sachdananda had a guitarist, and Yogi Bhajan put Guru Ganesh out there, and they looked at the two of them at some restaurant even and said, "Go in the back room and write a kirtan," <laughs> and that was probably the beginning of Western kirtan. I don't, know, I don't know. It was one of the closest. So since then, so many people have written their own kirtans. But in the early days, I, I remember there were more people doing traditional Indian melodies that they learned in India. And that's what I love. And yes, there are people like Jai who can write their own. Jai is an exception because, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty serious about melodies. But Jai's kirtans, he has the, the incredible ability as a composer you know, 99% of his stuff is absolutely great. I love it. And I'm very fortunate to have that job to support him. Hopefully I, hopefully I give him what he needs to go in that world and do what he needs, which is what a drummer does. Is we support you guys, even you sitar players. But um, as Kirtan became more popular, um, and Jai and I, Jai has this kirtan camp every August that we do in the Bay Area in California for a week. And over the years, we were almost, we'd almost be in our 20th year, if not for COVID. We've had a lot of people come through who are now on the road traveling after studying with us a bit. And a lot of them write their own melodies. Some of them are great. Some people are just taking regular Western chord progressions and putting the mantras onto it. Others are, are, are doing stuff a little Indian. Um, personally, because of my training, I would prefer to hear more Indian stuff. But I think maybe the Western world is maybe not ready for all those scales. And at the same time, I think it's a beautiful new art form when these people come up with their own styles and their own compositions using the mantras. Um, people need to spend more time learning the proper pronunciations, myself included, especially if they're putting them on, on recordings so that other people don't learn wrong pronunciations. So a, a little Sanskrit study is a great thing to do. And um, people like our good friend Gina Salah, who I'm, I've been 
blessed to play with for about six, seven years now, who is also a Sanskrit master. It's just wonderful to be around someone who knows the proper pronunciations. Highly recommend that. So all this, as it moves forward now, um, one of the problems is, from a classical perspective, quality control. So you asked, what's, what, what's the problems? Again, I'm coming around to it again. So if you're alone in your room, or maybe with a group of friends, or definitely with a group of friends, or maybe even in, in your yoga class, and you want to sing the kirtan, that's great. Who cares what you sound like? Who cares how, how in tune you are, how out of tune you are, how rhythmic in time you are? It's your prayer. It's a wonderful art form for people who don't have musical ability. But occasionally you have situations where people of limited musical ability have decided they want to push themselves into the paid kirtan circuit to get paid for it, like, like the professionals who've been out there for a long time. And the ethics, there's very little quality control because the yoga studio people don't necessarily know music. How good is this person? Is this someone I should be charging for? Is this someone who people are going to come to my yoga studio, pay me music to come and sit in my studio and listen to this person that I'm presenting? And when they come in, they might be a musician and they're going to hear this person and go, this is horrible. I don't want to do kirtan. So my worry is some new people will hear what everybody, it's like the emperor wears no clothes. It's like, oh, we're all here to hear this great, to do this new idiom that my friends have never heard of and I'm bringing them. And here's, you know, someone who just makes them cringe because they happen to be musicians and they can hear out of tune they are. So there is this problem. Yeah, that's an interesting um, yeah, so if they have never heard a good kirtan singer, they may never come back to kirtan. Mm. And, you know, that's one extreme example. Um, I don't want to stop anybody from singing kirtan. But right. there needs to be a little more quality control about who can charge for it versus who is just having a hootenanny with their friends. Right. Because charging for it, yeah, if you have a lot of devotion in the kirtan world, people don't care how, how good musically you are, if you can really do that. But there, there are very few out-of-tune, really good singers that can get over because of their emotion and their devotion. Right. Um, most people need to get that across. Now, remember, let's, this is where the idea of classical music is the perfection of music and rhythm. And when you perfect that music and rhythm, you create the people around you who hear that to vibrate on a level that they recognize as being something they want to be around. When you sing out of tune, most people can feel there's something wrong and they do not necessarily like it. Not everybody totally understands that without musical training, but a lot of people do. So. Which is to say, all you budding kirtan singers, you should take some music lessons and learn how to sing in tune so that you could charm your listeners and bring them. You're, you're the guide bringing the room on a journey of prayer. And the more 
in tune you are, the more people are going to want to sing with you. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of the analogy of, you know, somebody who's going to give you medical advice. You would want them to have some understanding and training. And when you apply that to music, it's, yes, the devotion is a key important ingredient of kirtan, but it's also done through the means of music. So what yeah. I hear you saying is you hope that more and more people will pursue the study of the music behind the kirtan and that that will be the the face of the kirtan that is out there, you know, professionally and charging. And, and um, I definitely also uh, agree with that vision. Yeah. And, and yeah, wow. Well, we, there's a lot we can talk about, and uh, I kind of want to bring it back to, you know, you told us the unique story of how you became very close with the Khan family and ultimately a tour manager, among other things, for the maestro himself, Ali Akbar Khan Saab. And you got to have the experience of touring with, you know, some of the all-time greats of, of Hindustani music, Ravi Shankarji, Ali Akbar Khan Saab, Alaraka, Zakir Hussain, and what are some of the things that you noticed behind the scenes while being on tour with these guys <laughs> that just that you took away or that kind of taught you and you know stuck with you because very few people have, have had that amazing experience that you have and uh, you know you played tampura on stage and um, you were right there with these guys yeah that's a vast subject um my my first my first year or two at the Ali Akbar College, I, I volunteered all the time. I mean, I just felt, I thought I was going into an ashram. What did I know? You know, in, India, Ali, Ali Akbar College of Music, I didn't know. Cut my hair, um, whatever, right? I was a vegetarian, you know, I was trying to do everything what I thought was spiritual. And I thought, oh, I'm going to study flute, I'm going to study vocal, I'm going to study tabla, you know. And of course, I get there and I realize, wow, this is way too vast, and I'm just going to study tabla and voice, forget the flute. And then I meet Ashish, your your guru, and Ashish gives me my first behind-the-scenes look of what's going on. Now, Ashish is this. I mean, Ravi Shankar delivered him for God's sakes. In the, Ravi Shankar went and married Ali Akbar's sister in in this little town in India where Ali Akbar's father was the. Maharaja's court musician and Ali Akbar's father had met young Ravi and invited him to study and Ravi came and studied alongside Ali Akbar and then married Ali Akbar's sister and Ali Akbar Khan his wife had your guru Ashishta while Ali Akbar Khan was away on a rainy night and it was a small village and I don't even know if there was a hospital there and Ravi Shankar was the midwife isn't that great? Anyway, I became close with Ashishta and would go to with him and his other his brother uh, Pranesh, who played tabla on their tours. And I, Ashish was so devoted, and I started to understand that the concert was was called a concert, but it was a it was a religious it was a spiritual meeting for him. You weren't performing. You were you were you were representing what music is on this planet to that hall and those people. And you were taking them all with you on that journey of worshiping perfection through rhythm and melody in this ancient 
literature. And so they respect that, they respected that so much. And I remember Ashish like one time chastised, saying, no, 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 don't touch the instrument case. We were, we were somewhere with the instruments waiting to load and I must have pushed one with my foot. No, you're not, you don't do that, that's disrespectful. You never step over an instrument. You go around. You respect them as if they're people. And so Ashishta gave me all this kind of early respect of these kind of things I didn't know. And um, as I started to work for Ali Akbar Khan, because I was working at the college helping to produce the concerts and everything, it was a very easy thing to move over. And he encouraged me to do projects for him. Um, recordings and this and that and each time I, I guess I got more confidence myself because I, I was a novice I was just a student who Ali Akbar Khan was giving me recording projects and he says um, touring he'd say here this man wants me to come and play will you set it up you know and I started very basic and ended up getting him grants from uh, California uh, Arts Council for touring all the universities, and, and then we did um, Europe every year. First with Zakir, and then um, with Swapanji. And Zakir was also instrumental in teaching me how to become a manager. And I want to. What I'm getting at is, these guys were really good at helping me to understand how to do their business. They never got angry at me. I don't. I don't remember Ali Akbar Khan ever raising his voice to me or saying an unkind word about the business that I did. Now music, <laughs> he'd never yell at you or anything, but he, he would let you know when you weren't doing it right, you know. Um, but I know with Ashishta and, and with, with Kansab, Ali Akbar Kansab, they had to learn how to cook because they couldn't find anybody to make the Bengali doll the way they liked it. And, yeah. and, and so all those years, Kansab would, and Ashishta in the beginning, would be cooking when I would come to the house. Yeah. Because I'd go over in the morning, maybe, and I'd stay for lunch, and they always fed me. And if I didn't come over to the house, maybe, because I had an office at the college, and... Um, they would send, if someone was going to the college, they'd send a Tupperware container with wow. my lunch, with my lunch in it. So they were always watching out for me. And I wasn't paid very much in the beginning. I mean, the very beginning, nothing. And then, then every year I'd get a little bit, but it was never a lot. And I, I never needed a lot. I was just so in the right place at the right time for my understanding of what I wanted to do with my life, which was foremost to learn from these people what they had to teach and share that, turn around and do whatever I was supposed to do with it, which obviously turned into kirtan, not classical music so much. And they, somehow, we set up this ability for me to help them and do that at the same time. And so that went on. I mean, I was there for nine years, and then I kind of burnt, burnt out a bit. Um, I was trying to practice too much. I was in the orchestra. I was in ensembles, I was playing Katak, I was booking concepts, Ali Akbar Khan's tours, I was producing the recordings, audio, video, we did videos. Um, it just all got to be too much 
after a while. But in the process, I was there at the right time at the right place when Ravi Shankar cycled back. It seemed like every, they, they would take breaks and then every five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years over the decades, they would start playing for a number of years together. Because they grew up together studying under Ali Akbar's father, Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan were like one mind. It's called a jugalbandi when, when classical artists play together in a duet, because normally classical music is just one string player or singer or flute player accompanied by one drummer. That is classical music. So the, the melodic artist can really go deep and focus and meditate and not break their concentration. So most duets, jugalbandis, they're, kind of, they're difficult for artists because they stop and they have to listen to the other artist. But with Ali Akbar and Ravi Shankar, they would be continuing each other's thoughts. When every, every duet we played, I think we played three or four years at Carnegie Hall. There's an old album live at Carnegie Hall, too, uh, that RCA put out. We played all over India, big stadiums, you know, 15,000 people. It was wonderful. And then uh, besides Carnegie Hall in the USA, there were a whole lot of gigs. We would get together the day before, just the, the two of them. And first they would argue about where to tune because the sitar is at D and the sarod is at C sharp. I can relate to that. <laughs> and I forget which way it would go. And I, they tune up a tambour for me and it's just the three of us. And I would sit there in the hotel room and kind of be a fly on the wall and keep the tambour going for them. And they would go through this most amazing process, closing their eyes. And one of them would start to play some lines that they learned from Ali Akbar's father, Aladdin. And the other would jump in and go, oh yeah, m musically remember. And then they would help each other along, taking turns remembering parts of the compositions or whatever, or improvising together. And they would do that for four or five or six different ragas. And then the next night, when the, when the concert would come, they'd probably just play three, three of those, maybe, maybe four. And they, it was so magical because of that one mind being able to, these two being able to share their lessons together. Now, I guess there are other people that grew up studying together, but these are two of the masters, the great masters. And uh, those things are legendary that they're playing. And... Um, I remember one time to answer your question, we were, we were in Europe somewhere, was, and I think it was with Zakir, uh, and I remember we went, at halftime, we went back into the dressing room, and, and I had never really heard them argue. And Ali Akbar was speaking in Hindi, not Bengali, because Zakir doesn't speak Hindi, um, very seriously, you know. And so later I asked one, I said, what was that all about? <laughs> Zakir had gone to triple time before Kansa. And in the ancient traditional way, the tuba player is supposed to wait for the melodic musician to introduce new rhythms. Before It was that simple. I never heard them talk about stuff like that. The, the Indian classical structure for a, a I'm going to use the word performance, even though I said it's not a performance, is this wonderful structure that's evolved over the years and it starts with 
will on sitar, whoever singing or instruments playing a lap George Allah or, or just a lap without the drummer. And they're able to be free and slow and meditative and they bring in more notes and they go faster and faster and faster and then they crescendo and then they bring in the drummer and they start all over again slow with the tuba player and they, and they start playing a melody that the tuba player recognizes the rhythm of that melody by that melody the gut and the tuba player is supposed to figure it out right away you know literally i mean one cycle hopefully and one or two after that and good tuba players they they generally can figure it out i'm okay at it most of the time sometimes i think when someone's playing in seven that it's a five or something or a six but um it's not a difficult thing one time Ali Akbar Khan was very angry at Zakir for Zakir started performing with John McLaughlin's band Shakti at the time I was studying with Zakir. And sometimes he would not show up at the time to teach or whenever. And he had a concert with Ali Akbar and we're all the students are sitting in the front row and Ali Akbar Khan was so angry at Zakir that he played something in a rhythm that nobody could figure out. <laughs> And first he's like really seriously concentrating on it because he's probably making it up on the spot, you know. Right. And we're all looking at each other and you see students are all counting on their fingers trying to figure out the melody. And Zakir's up there trying to figure out the rhythm cycle like we're all trying to figure it out. And nobody could figure it out. And Kantsov was kind of laughing at Zakir and he did it because he was angry at him. And he finally told him it was 23. Oh, God. <laughs> None of us ever got 23. That was something he made up on the spot. It doesn't exist in Indian classical music, or at least not in regular well, lexicon. Just in that moment, it did. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, moments like that, um, for the most part, one thing I love, I don't know about Ashishta, uh, you, can, you could probably answer this. Kantab, if we got his jacket on, we had our tea, had his final tea, and we got up to go to a concert, leave the house. If someone called him with a phone ring as he was going out the door, he'd turn around, take off his coat, sit down and have another cup of tea. It was bad luck. Mm. If someone stopped you as you were going out the door to a concert. Mm. I and he'd go back. That. Yeah. <laughs> Experienced that in Calcutta, where I saw that happen to people. They explained to me that idea that I wasn't familiar with, but hmm, yeah. Um, here's a great story, behind-the-scenes story. Mm. We're in Europe. The M the Indian Embassy is taking care of us. We're playing at some huge 2,000-seat, famous Par Parisian theater, and the Embassy holds a, a reception for us at the Embassy. And they send the Mercedes-Benz with the, with the chauffeur, who's this big Indian guy. And we go sightseeing in the afternoon, and we go to the Eiffel Tower, and it's Swapan Chaudhary, Mary Khan, two students, Brian and, and uh, his girlfriend at the time, and me, and Ali Akbar Khan. Hmm. We go up the Eiffel Tower, and they got the photograph booth where you stick your head through a thing, and you're a, you're a strong man holding holding someone up on your arm and 
So Concept sticks his head through there, and Mary sticks his head. And the, the Frenchman who's taking the photos tells us the price, and he says, you don't have to buy any of the photos. So we're just being stupid tourists, and we're taking pictures of everybody's heads. And when we're done, the, the guy says, okay, that's like $1,000 or something. He was trying to rip us off. It was what, much more than what he quoted. And so we started arguing with him, and he was big. And he picked me up by my shirt tails and lifted me off the ground. And, and Swapun is like trying to get him to put me down. And I look over the guy's shoulder, and there's Ali Akbar Khan putting his gloves on, going like, <laughs> ready, ready to jump into the brawl, you know? I was like, this is too much. Luckily, a policeman came, broke it up, told us to get out of there. But, um, you know, Ali Akbar Khan used to ride around Calcutta on his motorcycle, get a little motorcycle, and yeah. I hear stories about it. I never saw that when he was young. He, he definitely had fun as a younger gentleman, and I think Ashishta, too. They, they knew how to have fun. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing to see the, the bigger personalities of, you know, they're famous around the world for their music and to... To get to have these kind of life experiences with these masters is uh, what a treasure. Yeah. And I really love the stories that you have and just the the experience and insight you get to share about you know your time with with these guys. And you know they're they're few are left with us. So yeah. um, I'm I'm really happy today about just everything you've been able to share about Indian classical music and its history and and like I mentioned about these great artists, and I think any listener who maybe doesn't have a deep understanding of, of this music is walking away with a great perspective, perspective and feeling for, for what it is that we love so much about this art form. And, and to kind of close it off, I'm, uh, I'm curious, looking back on your journey and in your path with music, what kind of advice or insight would you share for somebody who might be beginning a path in music and uh what 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 would you offer as as just some some words of advice well first go go see all the great musicians you can see i know it's not so easy now but maybe on youtube get inspired find the music that inspires you if it's classical music it's endless what's out there um listen it's like if you want to be a great writer you read if you want to be a musician listen Mm -hmm. Get uh, get a teacher. You can go through teachers. You you don't necessarily going to find the right teacher at first, depending on where you are and, and and how you find. Don't let that stop you. Find another teacher. Study with more than one teacher at once. Um, in the classical traditions, there's there's still a lot of you know you're supposed to stay in your garana in your family and study with people in your family, but. Um, a lot of people do not do that. Um, just be aware of that. If you get into a classical garana, classical school, they like you to stay with their family. But um, get a good sense of how to practice with a metronome, with a clock that goes, that you say, I'm going to, you know, I don't have a lot of time. I got to go to work. Okay, get up an hour earlier. And can you get 20 minutes and watch the clock? Don't stop until you get to the 20 minutes, and then you may go, oh, I don't want to stop, and go, you know, keep going. I used to do 50 minutes 
sometimes 45 every as an hour and then i take a five, uh, 10 minute break and do another hour and i would get up early in the morning 4 or 5 a.m and try and get two or more hours in and on saturdays if i didn't have to go anywhere i would go you know take a break for breakfast and do two more take a break for lunch and do two more or maybe it maybe go out and do what i have to do in the day and then do try and get another hour even 20 minutes even five minutes is better than nothing of focused practice what your teacher is showing you so whether it's western music or indian music you've all you, you all know what the exercises are you hear them um, you hear piano players in the back of your mind. Da, 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 Those are the same exercises we do in Indian music. Yep. So if you want to be a kirtan singer, learn on harmonium, the scales and the exercises. And at the same time, I would suggest learning sargam, which is our version of solfege. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, di, do, sa, re, ga, ma, pa, da, ni, sa, and you sing them while you're playing the harmonium with the metronome slowly. You do all these exercises and that Will and I can show you. And the more you do those exercises, that's the holy grail. That's the entrance to music because that's every mathematical possibility of the scale. And it will enable you to start to recognize musical patterns that all music is made of, whether it's kirtan or anything, and will improve your musical ability. And even if you don't intend to be a classical Indian artist, studying classical Indian music will improve your ability at whatever music you decide to play. And there's one last thing I want to add about that. You'll hear people say, oh, Indian music has 22 notes in the octave whereas western music only has 12. and though that is true that that exists on a very high level of what they call microtones which could be similar similarly described as a blues guitarist playing a flat third and flattening a little bit more than a normal flat third to get that moved so both Indian classical music and Western music use the same 12-tone chromatic scale with seven names of notes and five sharps or flats. And so Indian music is very accessible to Westerners, including what I described earlier about learning how to practice on a very basic scale level your exercises. You don't even have to learn Indian compositions. You just do those exercises that will help you at whatever you do. That's great. I love that advice. And it's just been a real pleasure speaking with you, Daniel. And um, I miss playing with you and uh, having you here. I'm sure you would be touring and playing and, and uh, doing a lot of different things right now. Um, we have this pandemic and well, I'm uh, sure, uh, I'm I'd sure be I'd be touring with you, Will. I mean, I one thing to <laughs> let people know that Will, um, Will and I only met about four or five years ago now, yep. and um, we uh, met by chance. 
but his guru is my guru, and so we are in the same family, the uh, Laudin Khan Sini Gurana, S-E-N-I, Sini Gurana, and the family of music. And I'm just so enamored of this young man. We're a generation apart, and he has taken this so seriously and so correctly, and it's a joy to listen to him play. And I'm so grateful that you have shown up and we have this relationship. Mm. Likewise. Well, well, well I'm, uh, I'm excited to get to share this, this chat we've had with many people. And Daniel, if people wanted to reach out to you for you know, questions or to learn from you, how, how would they uh, get in touch with you? Um, I, I used uh, the email Tabla, T-A-B-L-A, Tabla Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, tabladaniel.com or tabladaniel, you can write me at yahoo.com. And I'm open for whatever questions anyone has or anything I can do for you. We are here to serve both of us, Will and I, so we're here for you guys. Our teachers, one of the, la the last thing Ali Khan said to me when I finally departed was, you must teach. I gave you too much. You must give it, give it back. Thank you, Will. Amen. Well, Daniel, um, I hope we meet and play again before too long. And uh, in the meantime, you know, sending lots of love. And uh, yeah, thanks again. <laughs> Ah, another great episode. Glad to have you here with us. And I'm sure some of you listening are musicians yourselves. Maybe some of you have wanted to take up an instrument and, and making music a part of your life. I just wanted to let you know that I've been teaching music for over 20 years now. I teach guitar, my first instrument, and also sitar. I also teach theory and ideas of a variety of different types of world music. If you're curious to look at booking a lesson with me, I'd love to help you achieve some of your musical goals. If you have any questions, feel free to write to me on my website, will at willmarshmusic.com, and you can also see a variety of lesson pack packages there on my website, willmarshmusic.com. You know, if it's something you've been always wanting to do, my suggestion is don't wait Life is short, and music just brings so much joy and value into life. So thanks again for joining us. See you on the next episode.